Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Senator Bill Cassidy discusses the power of putting health care in the hands of patients. Joseph Lacotte evaluates liberalism and faith. Dr. Steve Perry provides his experiences fighting for school choice in New York and beyond. And retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson walks us through the troubling decisions that led the U.S. to war in Iraq. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. For a while, there was a little bit of debate about it. Now, I think it's fair to say that uh, we have to use the term trade war, that the United States is in a trade war, uh, and perhaps soon more than one, or maybe it's a war with the world itself. Uh, to talk about that, uh, I have Dan Eikenson, the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies here at Cato, and Inumanik a visiting scholar here at Cato. So we have a lot to talk about, and I'm always nervous to talk about uh, issues where there's a lot of moving parts uh, as we're recording and things could change dramatically before anyone hears this recording. So please forgive us, uh, dear listener. Um, but let's start with uh, China, which is ongoing. But what do we know about the relationship uh, between the United States and China with respect to trade and why is uh, the president, it seems like he may not want a deal with China. Well, look, we have a huge uh, relationship uh, with China. Uh, we import uh, $550 billion worth of goods. Uh, we export about $130 billion worth of goods. U.S. companies in China have revenues there of about $500 billion. There's been a lot of Chinese investment in the United States uh, in recent years, which has kind of slowed down as a result of growing concerns about technology acquisition and things like that. I think the trade war that we were in, and we can definitely call it a trade war, uh, was precipitated by a case that the, the president, that President Trump um, prosecuted against China, something called Section 301 of the Trade Act of 1974, which enables the president to impose trade restrictions in response to what are perceived as unfair practices abroad. And the unfair practices that were identified primarily deal with technology and intellectual property, such as forced technology transfer, um, failure to enforce intellectual property protections uh, well enough. And, and, and the report documented a lot of these issues. But Trump seems to conflate those serious structural concerns with uh, you know, basic things like uh, mistakes about the trade deficit. You know, He thinks our bilateral trade deficit with China is something that needs to be remedied because that means that China's winning, uh, that they're eating our lunch. So the tariffs were originally imposed last summer on $16 billion worth of exports. Then they were expanded to another $34 billion, came to a total of $50 billion by the end of July. And this is annual flows? This is based on the trade flows from 2017. The Trump administration basically applied 10% duties on $50 billion of imports. China retaliated. Uh, against $50 billion of U.S. exports. So Trump said, okay, we're going to uh, su subject $200 billion more to 25% duties. Well, he held off on the 25%, kept it at 10%. And then last week, it, as since last week, it's now up to 25% on that, that second $200 billion. So $250 billion right now are subject to 25%. And a new list just came out yesterday of the remaining products that we import from China that are all going to be subject to 25% tariffs as well. So basically, we're talking about 
all imports from China and just about all exports to China are now subject to taxes. So Americans are a lot less free to trade today than they were on January 20th, 2017. So with respect to uh, China specifically, as you said, the the president seems to conflate uh, the substantial issues that ought to be dealt with that pretty much everybody seems to agree uh, uh, pose problems. Um, But our colleague uh, Simon Lester has pointed out fairly convincingly, the World Trade Organization, the United States has a pretty good record there with respect to bringing disputes and having them adjudicated uh, reasonably. But it seems Donald Trump and his trade team, uh, Wilbur Ross, uh, Mr. Lighthizer, uh, and others uh, are not impressed or not uh, willing to go that route, it seems, generally. I think in many ways, when you look at the way the Trump administration is addressing the China issue is through unilateral actions. So the U.S. just deciding how it wants to deal with China on its own terms. Now, this is inherently problematic in the sense that there's a lot of things we can do with our trading partners who have similar concerns with China. So you're looking at issues of tech transfer, uh, intellectual property concerns, state-owned enterprises. These are things that the Europeans have also been very concerned about as well as the Japanese. So I think working with our trading partners is probably the best way to actually have a lot of collective pressure on China to make these internal domestic changes rather than what we're doing right now. But the problem is, is that the administration is very skeptical of multilateral engagement which is making it really hard to take that route. So though it would be beneficial, it's right now a challenge to go that way. The, you know, they, they definitely are skeptical of the international institutions. Lighthizer has a professional aversion to the World Trade Organization. And when they, the Trump administration came in, there was a narrative that had started to take hold in Washington that the WTO couldn't rein in Chinese practices. They would disregard those rules. And as Simon and, and Jim and others have pointed out, uh, that's simply not true. China's pretty good at that. And had we gone that route, the one that Inu just described, standing shoulder to shoulder with the Europeans and the Japanese and the Koreans, uh, it wouldn't be U.S. businesses and U.S. consumers and U.S. exporters shouldering the burden of this tariff war. We would have had a much less porous wall to, to show to China, and, and they would probably be, feel more compelled to right the ship uh, more quickly. Now, with respect, uh, more broadly, uh, we should go back in time a little bit, and it seems like an eternity ago, but the United States was all set to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership, and it's worth noting China was not a member of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And yet, Inu, as you pointed out, this was a multilateral uh, negotiation. Many, many countries were involved in the TPP and the Trump administration said, no, we're out. So what, what's been the effect of that? Well, I think not joining the TPP was one of the biggest mistakes that Trump made upon entering office. And when you look at what's happening now, it's gone into effect. All these other countries have moved on without the United States. So what this means is that the United States actually doesn't have market access that its trading partners have. So, for example, Canada and Mexico now have access to the Japanese market, and the United States doesn't. So we still have to negotiate a new trade agreement with Japan instead of just acceding to the TPP. The other thing is that the TPP was set up as a way to kind of contain China in a sense. So we're going to bring China into this rule system that we created and we helped negotiate in order to discipline their practices. But now being outside of that, if China ever joins, the U.S. is just not part of that at all. And that's a big problem. Yeah, I I generally agree with everything said there. The the one thing I would maybe modify is is the word contain. And because... 
at the time when TPP was being pitched, there was a lot of uh, you know antipathy toward it, particularly among Democrats. Uh, but the way the Obama administration was selling it to Congress was to say, hey, this is an agreement that doesn't involve China. You know, Americans were polling fair, reasonably favorably in terms of trade. But when you talked about trade with China, they didn't like it. So it, selling this politically was to say this doesn't include China and it kind of contains China. But when you speak to Singaporeans and New Zealanders and Australians, they said, don't make us pick and choose. It's not a matter of containing China. And in fact, the idea was to have these rules much more, um, you know, uh, high, high, high end 21st century rules. All of China's trading partners on the periphery would be in this agreement. And if China wanted to take advantage of it, they would have to improve their rules too. So that was a way to discipline them rather than doing what we're doing now. Yeah, but it seems like uh, the United States becoming a part of the TPP would have been a pretty heavy hitter jumping into this massive trade agreement. And, and as you say, China can either accept those rules or not. Right. And, and, you know, we've basically ceded a vehicle for U.S. soft power in Asia as well. And, you know, people, some people have different interpretation of, interpretations of Pax Americana, but we are basically loosening ourselves from, uh, from, from Asia and from the world. Some people think that's good in some senses, but this, this administration seems skeptical of every international arrangement, every international organization that we're a part of. And this is happening awfully rapidly and it's spooking the rest of the world and quite frankly, doesn't seem like they have a viable alternative uh, to, to what we've had since the end of the Second World War. So NAFTA is now the USMCA, the trade agreement uh, among the United States, Canada and Mexico has become, I and I guess it's, correct me if I'm wrong, NAFTA but a little worse. Is that about right? Well, I, I would say in a sense, yes, right? So what we've seen is uh, NAFTA pretty much carried over in many ways. Some elements taken from the TPP, ironically, the worst deal ever negotiated, according to Trump, um, even though NAFTA was also the worst deal ever negotiated, according to Trump. Uh, so now what we have is two of those put together, plus some other tweaks that actually made it a lot worse. So, for example, when we look at the deal on autos within NAFTA, the new NAFTA, USMCA, we see actually more stringent rules that will make it much more difficult for U.S. companies to make autos in North America. So it's going to raise costs for consumers in the United States, and this is a big problem. Yeah. So I, I think there's some elements of the new NAFTA of the USMCA which are better than the original, the, the modernizations, the updates, the you know, the digital trade chapter, things like that. But you know, at what cost? Uh, we really uh, poked our trading partners in the eyes, and and uh, frankly, the TPP, which we were just talking about, was the renegotiation of NAFTA, and so we really haven't improved much upon it here. That includes twelve countries, much greater portion of global uh, the global economy and 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 the world's population. So here we are with uh, sort of a lesser deal, and it's unclear that it's going to even pass the Congress. The politics suggest that the Democrats have no real reason to give Trump a victory or to um, really want to get to, to all of a sudden buy into a trade agreement that it has used as a whipping boy for 25 years. Now, let's uh, talk a little bit about some of the nitty gritty that is in the USMCA. One of them is rules governing domestic content, that is the, the value, some sort of percentage of content of automobiles must be domestic in origin. What does, the, in, a, in a global trading system, 
what does it even mean for a car to have a specific share or a specific share of the value be domestic content? So all trade agreements have something called rules of origin, right? So you have to be able to say that a product that you are selling to a different country has certain percentages of value that comes from the partners that are in the trade agreement. Otherwise, there's no benefit to negotiating a trade agreement with particular partners. However, what economists have already explained in many different estimations of rules of origin is that you need to keep rules of origin fairly relaxed. You have to make it easy uh, for your trading partners to source certain components of these things that they're making from other countries where it's most efficient. So in the current global supply chain environment that we live in, when you're building a car, let's say in the United States, you're not going to buy every part and component from the United States. Why? Because often what you have are options abroad, which are going to be far more efficient for the manufacturer, perhaps are going to be parts that they cannot find in the United States, and it's going to make the automobile uh, the most optimal product uh, for that manufacturer. So when you increase the rules and make it harder for that manufacturer to buy those things from other places, that's increasing their cost, and that cost then gets passed on to the consumer in a form of a higher price for that product. So essentially what USMCA did was take the threshold of what was required for content from Canada, Mexico, and the United States and increase that threshold by quite a big percentage. So now, now U.S. autos are going to be actually far more expensive. And it's weird because that's to the extent that you're getting a more domestic product, the price has increased. And that seems pretty counterintuitive. So one of, one of the other things is that uh, uh, to you, Dan Eikenson, the response from automakers has been as you might expect it, which is we're, we don't necessarily have to play this game. One of the problems with having onerous rules of origin or too rigid rules of origin is that it incentivizes producers to just say, ah, forget about it. We'll just produce it somewhere else. We'll produce the clothing elsewhere. We'll produce the autos elsewhere and just export it to the United States and endure the tariff. Uh, in the United States, the, the tariff on automobiles is 2.5%. And that's not that significant uh, particularly when you're talking about raising the cost thresholds, uh, requiring domestic content to go from what 62.5% to 75%. Um, so auto producers said, well, you know, you're making it really difficult for us to produce here. I think the most efficient thing for us to do would be to produce somewhere else and export. And then Trump said, well, we're just going to slap higher tariffs on you. We're going to increase those tariffs. And sure enough, he has pursued um, another national security case. If you'll recall, uh, last year he had uh, imposed duties on, on steel and aluminum under because they presented a national security threat to the United States. He's done the same thing with automobiles. He has not announced what the results of the Commerce Department investigation uh, were. I imagine Wilbur Ross is uh, going to be pretty pliant here and, <laughs> and generate something that Trump wants. But I think Trump is using this uh, to make sure that uh, producers continue to produce in the United States. I think he's probably also using it in negotiations with the Europeans and in negotiations with the Japanese to, to say, uh, give us what we want in this new bilateral trade agreement uh, or else you're going to get hit with these tariffs. Now, these special tariffs on steel and aluminum, again, a fairly dubious uh, national security rationale offered by the president, were against Canada, Mexico, originally Canada, Mexico, and the European Union. Uh, so, uh, and it was my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, getting the USMCA 
was supposed to be the triggering event for effectively getting rid of these tariffs, supposed to be leverage. But here we are in the middle of 2019, and those tariffs are still on the books. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just Canada and Mexico and Europe. It was the whole world. And then countries individually tried to find their ways out by cutting deals with Trump. The, the, the Koreans, for example, agreed to limit their exports of steel to 70% of what they had exported in the, in the year before. Um, and that was kind of um, memorialized as part of the revised Korea-US trade agreement. Um, yeah, these tariffs are still in place. Look, the Trump administration is loaded with former steel executives and former steel trade lawyers. And so uh, I think that explains a lot of why they're still in place. But, you know, Mitch, is it Mitch McConnell or was it Grassley? Yeah. It was Grassley last week or the week before saying that he's not going to vote in favor of this agreement unless those those tariffs come down first. And that's one of the, the, the few positive signs we've seen from Republicans in Congress. As I see on uh, Twitter, among trade Twitter folks, um, the oft-repeated phrase, if only there were someone with the constitutional authority to change these rules. And by the rules, we mean the de massive delegations over decades from Congress to the president uh, in hopes of having a president who is going to go around the world and secure good deals for the United States for to be able to get those adopted as quickly as possible and be the sort of honest tradesman around the world. Uh, no one imagined until the Trump administration that those uh, delegations would be used to restrict trade, to shrink engagement uh, with trade around the world. Um, is there any sentiment in Congress right now to begin to say, look, we need to dial back the amount of authority that we've given, not just to this president, but to the president in general? I mean, I think that there has been. Uh, there were some bills uh, introduced last year before this current Congress um, by, by the way, by, by senators who were retiring and didn't have to experience Trump's wrath and be primaried or anything like that. But I think there is a growing concern, uh, you know, bipartisan concern in both chambers. However, uh, any legislation that would require the president to go jump through extra hoops before imposing tariffs to basically rein in his powers will require the president's signature or a veto override. So we need two thirds of both chambers. And at this point, it doesn't seem like those votes exist. But the closer we get to the election, uh, as the pain from the US-China trade war manifests itself, uh, if the auto tariffs are imposed, which by the way, there's not a single US constituency that wants them, uh, I think we'll see an uproar and I think we'll see Congress doing something about it. You know, you mentioned uh, with respect to all of these uh, supply chains that move around the world uh, and through various countries and some countries, you've got to earn your spot in the global supply chain. And to the extent that the United States, if it's expo trying to export goods to China uh, or any other country and is facing those consumers in those countries, you know, people who are producing things uh, are facing 25% tariffs that has to put U.S. industry at a profound disadvantage. And my, my sort of background worry in all of this trade stuff has been that the United States uh, or producers in the United States will, one, lose their place in the global supply chain. And even if those tariffs are reversed, will not be able to regain its important spots in those supply chains. What do you think? 
I would agree with that. I think that the tariffs fundamentally hurt U.S. businesses and their competitiveness in the world. So when you think about the latest round of tariffs that the United States is going to apply to China, these are going to hurt intermediate inputs a lot. So these are parts that are essentially components that U.S. Uh, companies bring in and then they transform them into something else and then sell them somewhere else in the world. So basically, a lot of the imports that we consume are not final consumption goods. These are things that are actually being used to make other things by U.S. companies and then they're sold abroad. So if we're actually levying a tax on that intermediate product, we're increasing the total cost of that production and making that company actually make decisions that are going to be making them worse off in the long run. So they're going to be less efficient, less competitive. It's going to hurt their bottom lines. It's going to hurt their employees, and it's going to hurt their customers. And that's a big, big deal for what's going on right now in terms of these tariffs. It's the most important point that I want all of our trade people to make everywhere all the time, is that intermediate goods is still about half of the value of what Americans import, and those intermediate goods go into other things that Americans make for global consumption. So uh, with respect to the steel and aluminum tariffs, to you, Dan Eikenson, these Section 232 uh, tariffs from the Trade Act of 1962, mm -hmm. uh, now the concern is that the president will apply those to uh, automobiles. You, you alluded to that earlier, but long run, what does that do? Um, it... Uh messes up the the uh the u.s consumer uh it makes it i mean the president thinks that by doing this he's going to encourage companies to come inside of the tariff wall and produce here but what that really means is that they're going to want to bring their entire supply chains in inside of the tariff wall because if you are manufacturing something and you have you want to produce efficiently you have to have these just-in-time supply chains and Every, not every component is made in the United States and if you have to produce inside of the United States and rely on imports on these components and you don't know if they're going to be subject to other tariffs, by the way, this 25% this tariff on autos also extends to auto parts. So uh, it, there's not a single constituency in America that wants it. No producer, no union, no distributor. This, this industry is about the most internationalized there is and uh, so that might be one of the reasons he hasn't really talked about it very much. The only reason it's uh, been sort of in the news the past couple of weeks is because under the statute, uh, the, you know, the report came out in February and then he has 90 days to decide what the remedy is going to be. That 90th day is uh, May 18th. And so he needs to, he can apply for an extension and that's likely what he's going to do by another 180 days. If, if he does that, this, it, it will be pr pretty much the worst trade policy decision ever made. The president came into office. He withdrew us from TPP. He has not come up with any new trade agreements yet that have been ratified. He's imposed duties on $300 billion of imports. He's exposed another $200 billion of U.S. exports to duties. Uh, I don't see us winning on trade at all so far. So uh, aside from, and perhaps this wouldn't even do it, uh, I think I've asked you, want both of you this <laughs> several times in the last two years, but uh, short of a lot of blood on Wall Street, what would make this president sort of wake up and decide, oh, I'm a free trader now? Yeah, I, don't, I don't know that he's going to wake up and say that, but he's certainly like a Gabriel over the White House moment. It's, it's all politics to him. So he, ha he doesn't have many choices 
uh, with respect to the the Chinese situation, he if he goes soft, so to speak, and accepts a deal that doesn't really compel China to fix some of these structural problems, the Democrats are going to hammer him. I think they want to outflank him uh, and contest the Rust Belt voters who went to Trump in 2016, and he knows that. Uh, but if he plays tough and, and continues the trade war, there's going to be not just blood on Wall Street, there's going to be blood on Main Street, and that's going to uh, create problems for him. So he's, he's, he's created this mess, and he's going to have to clean it up. We haven't even really talked about the, the politics of it in a, in a substantive way. I, I know that uh, some some uh, data that Scott Lincecum of the Cato Institute has pointed to says, you know, Democrats are more free trade than they've ever been. Farmers who, by and large, did support the president are facing uh, the potential of not having massive markets for their uh, for their products. A political price you would think would have to be paid at some point for policies that are robbing people who supported you of their livelihoods. Yeah, I think the big question right now is whether public sentiment in the U.S. translates into actual policy actions that are going to happen with the upcoming primary elections. Uh, you know, So I think that when we're looking at the Democratic candidates, for example, you look at what they'd said so far on trade when questioned about it. The problem that we're seeing at the moment is that a lot of Democrats, when they look at what Trump is doing, his protectionist policies are in many ways in line with things that they've supported in the past. So now how can they come out and say what he's doing is wrong or I wouldn't do it this way myself? It's a huge problem, I think, for the Democrats uh, as a whole in how to counter Trump. I mean, at the end of the day, if they looked at the numbers and they looked at how people actually feel about trade in the United States, what they would do is say, hey, tariffs are taxes and we have to stop this. Pete Buttigieg of uh, Mayor Pete, as he is known, uh, just tweeted out. Al Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> So-called Alfred E. <laughs> Newman. Uh, he has tweeted out, quick reminder, a tariff is a tax on Americans. And so it seems like that creates a lot of space for middle-of-the-road Democrats who are not wedded to uh, any particular radical ideology to say, I'm for free trade. And that seems to be a perfectly, perfectly mainstream opinion uh, and becoming more so. Is that fair to say? I think it is. And I think a lot of Democrats who say that are in favor of trade recognize that tariffs are taxes. But there's also a tendency to think in terms of um, trade agreements that need to rein in certain kinds of behavior that have super environmental provisions and labor provisions and that ensure that products are made a certain way. So it's uh, it's not just about the economics, you know, it's sort of the, the social aspects of, of how trade is conducted that concerns, uh, concerns these Democrats. As, just to go back to uh, the farmers, we saw in the midterm elections districts in southern Illinois and in Iowa, the two primary areas where soy is produced, getting less Republican. Uh, and, and a few, a couple of those districts actually flipped. And I think Trump is aware of that. And he's directed subsidies to farmers who've lost some revenues. And he's announced that he's going to direct another 15 billion soon for them. So instead of farmers who are hardworking, perhaps very, the most patriotic Americans out there, uh, uh, selling products to to the Chinese, they're going to be on the dole, which is something that is going to break their spirit, I think. All right. 
On that sad note, we're going to leave it there. Dan Eikenson directs the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Eno Monarch is a visiting scholar at the Cato Institute. You can learn more and follow Cato's work on this trade war and, of course, subscribe to our new newsletter related to the Jones Act at our website, cato.org. Twenty-five years ago, the Cato Institute published a book that helped change the market for health insurance and health care in the United States, Patient Power. At a forum discussing the book's impact after 25 years, Republican Senator Bill Cassidy of Louisiana detailed how putting patients in control yields enormous benefits for the health care consumer. My background, I worked in a public hospital for the uninsured. And in that, ultimately, the legislature controlled everything. And you couldn't help but notice when the legislature controls everything, the decisions are made not by the patient, but rather by the legislature or the person whom they designate. The example I always use, <laughs> I shouldn't laugh, but it just, just in retrospect, the hospital in which we worked had a broken door, and the broken door stayed broken for a year and a half to two years. And you would say, no, when I say broken, I don't mean like a glass pane. I mean the door was off the hinges. And you would just walk in, and then there'd be a second door. Um, and, uh, and a friend of mine who's from Uganda, a physician who came to practice with me, goes, this looks like a, this looks like a hospital in Uganda. <laughs> well, ooh, it's probably not a good thing. Um, and that's because there was no money. The patients had no place else to go. And so why spend the money on that when the patients had no place else to go? The patient didn't have the power because she could not go someplace else. I contrasted that with where my wife practiced, uh, a hospital for women. Women make 95% of the decisions in healthcare. And everything lined up knowing those women could choose to go someplace else. So uh, the, 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 the wall paint was pink and mauve. There was a place to pull up. Somebody would then park your car for you. And there would be a docent as you walked in the door to make sure you went to the right place with a coffee shop selling you a $4 cup of coffee and a flower shop in case you forgot flowers for the just delivered a mother. And so I go through that to contrast of a place that the patient had no power and the patient that did. If you, th if you will, I think that the whole kind of... Um, uh, uh, high deductible health plan, but patient consumer driven health care has been a result of a book like this. We're now at a point though, do we go to Medicare for all, which is kind of central planning with supercomputers, but political control ultimately, or do we go to market forces where the patient has the power, uh, the payor has more of the power if it's a small business owner, et cetera. And, and that's the choice where we are now. So it is a tide that has come in but whether it continues to rise, I think is the point where we are now. The Veterans Affairs Committee, what can we learn? From my perspective, you can learn that if the patient doesn't have the power, then inevitably the bureaucrats will abuse. Um, and so you think of the VA in Philadelphia, where moving expenses were being manipulated, um, positions created, and some people slotted, not others, principally for the knowledge of the insiders. That is wrong. Now, the VA is doing all it can to become more responsive. I get that. But, uh, but if you have the so-called street-level bureaucrat, so we had testimony from uh, somebody 
at a VA hospital about how mentally ill patients would have to come from an hour and a half away, and if they were missing their appointment by 15 minutes, they were not rebooked later in the day, rather they were rebooked for several weeks later. Now, mentally ill patients coming from hours away are not likely to show up for the return appointment. So there is a, now that said, there are committed VA healthcare personnel. I get that. But I do think that the bureaucracy is immobilizing at times. And so what we need to learn is there has to be flexibility. The patient has to be first. The VA works where the patient is first. It does not where the people who administer are getting the benefits, not the patient. Liberalism, a political philosophy that grew out of the Enlightenment and champions reason, freedom, and equality, has lately been criticized by some religious thinkers in the West. Liberalism, in their view, only atomizes individuals, weakens society, and ultimately corrodes all faiths. So is liberalism good for faith? Joseph LeConte of King's College detailed some of the historical arguments over why liberalism fits with people of faith. Look, there are a lot of people on the cultural left who think that uh, political liberalism is and ought to be the enemy of traditional religion. And they're, they're happy about that. Uh, I think many on the left want their particular vision of liberalism to render religious belief irrelevant and to keep people of faith confined to their little sanctuaries. That's out there. Others, though, especially the, some on the cultural and religious right, they also believe that liberalism erodes traditional religious belief. And they think this is what liberalism was designed to do. Catholic political scientist Patrick Deneen, uh, he argues that the liberal project was essentially steeped in sin from its birth. When liberalism dissolves our moral commitments to one another, when it stigmatizes our faith communities, according to Patrick Deneen, it is being true to itself true to itself. I think that both sides in this debate, on the left and on the right, I think they misconstrue the foundations of liberal democracy, and I don't think they've got the, a, a strong enough grip on the nature of authentic religious belief. Maybe that's intellectual laziness, maybe it's something else, but I think both sides have embraced a thoroughly false and ironically militantly secular view of the historic rise of the liberal democratic project. And I'll unpack with that, what I mean by that in a minute here, but this liberal democratic project helped to make possible the renewal of religious belief in the West, I would argue. It was this liberal democratic project that uh, properly understood that enshrined the concept of religious freedom, freedom of conscience in the culture and in the institutions of the West. The conservative critics of liberalism, I don't think they've taken their historical task seriously enough. And I think by failing to attend carefully to the past, they can't really understand the current predicament or offer a meaningful uh, advice about the path forward into the future. Let me just take a moment with this history about the liberal project. It began, it began as a response to the sins of Christendom. The sins of Christendom. What sins? Let me just name a few here. The denigration of individual conscience, the criminalization of dissent, the corrosive entanglement of church and state, the hedonism of clerical leadership, and the deeply rooted anti-Semitism. I would argue that the Catholic medieval project, for all of its achievements 
and some of them are truly remarkable and positive, but for all of its achievements, it failed to uphold one of the most transformative ideas of the Jewish and Christian traditions. What idea? The freedom and the dignity of every human soul. And that was a catastrophic failure. And that failure, I would argue, generated a robustly Christian response. The liberal project began as an attempt to build a more just society. How? <laughs> By appealing, believe it or not, to the life and teachings of Jesus. Listen to John Locke on this one in his letter concerning toleration. If the gospel and the apostle may be credited, Locke said, no man can be a Christian without charity and without that faith which works not by force, but by love. This was the Lockean basis for religious freedom, an appeal to the moral example of Jesus, combined, yes, combined with the principle of equal justice under the law. Equal justice under the law, regardless of religious belief. So the father of political liberalism, sought a renewed commitment to authentic Christianity, uncoerced Christianity, as the foundation for a pluralistic society. For guys like Locke, the problem wasn't religion. The problem was the decline of genuine faith, a spiritual corruption aided and abetted by a culture of coercion. And what were the results of that culture of coercion, have I suggested? The Europe of Locke's day was a persecuting society. Here's how Locke put it in his letter. No peace and security, no, not so much as common friendship can ever be established or preserved amongst men as long as this opinion prevails that religion is to be propagated by force of arms. No peace, no security, not even friendship with that idea. So the liberal project, by insisting on the separation of church and state, offered the pathway toward religious renewal and to a more just and humane society. So now the question then is, well, what has the Lockean vision of a just commonwealth produced, particularly in the United States? What effect has it had on religion? And I, I like to quote a few lines here from Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. He's always a good guy to quote. Uh, and this is, you know, de Tocqueville in the 1830s. So he's, you know, 60 some odd years after the start of this Lockean liberal project. And what does he say here? Just a couple of lines, if I could. What he's observing as a French Catholic coming there from the European scene, what does he see? Here's what he sees. He says, um, <laughs> I love his comments about the Europeans. He says, there's a certain European population whose disbelief is equaled only by their brutishness and ignorance. Whereas in America, one sees one of the freest and most enlightened peoples in the world equally fulfill all the external duties of religion. On my arrival in the United States, he says, it was the religious aspect of the country that first struck my eye. Among us, the Europeans, I had seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom almost always move in contrary directions. Here in America, I found them united intimately with one another. They reigned together on the same soil, the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom on the same soil. That's what he saw, one of the most careful observers of the American scene, the impact of the separation of church and state. And he goes on to just lay it out. All the ministers he spoke to said the vitality of religion in America is due to the separation of church and state. He just lays it out. Well, uh, guys like Locke, as they are today, uh, it seems to me, if you read Patrick Deneen carefully, Locke was, was initially attacked uh, as an atheist. One critic uh, compared Locke to one of those locusts that arose from the smoke of the bottomless pit. 
And uh, the amazing thing is that by the 18th century, Locke's combination of Christian piety, Christian faith, and natural rights, that combination was sounded from the pulpits on both sides of the Atlantic. And yet today, as I'm suggesting, today we hear Christian conservatives, some rejecting liberal democracy with its emphasis on individual freedom. Let me quote you from Patrick Deneen. Locke writes that the law works to increase liberty, Deneen says, by which he means our liberation from the constraints of the natural world, our liberation from the constraints of the natural world. Ron Reno at the Catholic Journal First Thing says this, Locke's ideal society is a free association of individuals unbound by duties that transcend their choices. Unbound by duties that transcend their choices. In other words, radical individualism is what they believe Locke was setting out to try to achieve. I think they've got it completely, mis completely wrong. I think some of these conservatives are kind of steeped in a nostalgia for a pre-modern medieval world. And they blame our modern social problems on the wicked, corrosive ideas of Lockean liberalism. So I would, I would put the question to them, and I put it this way if they were uh, here in the audience. Which ideas exactly are so corrosive of religious belief and moral commitments? Which ideas? Is it the idea of human equality and human freedom based on the proposition that every person bears the image of God? Is it the idea that the rights of conscience are sacred and can't be coerced by church or state? Is it the idea that impartial justice, the golden rule, must be the cornerstone of any democratic society? Or how about the idea that the desire to know God, to find peace with God, is inherent in every human soul, and that the state must respect this desire or forfeit its legitimacy? Are these the ideas that threaten religious belief and have somehow shipwrecked the liberal order? Friends, and as, as an historian, I can tell you, it was these concepts, on the contrary, that helped the West to recover its Christian conscience. John Locke, a founding father of political liberalism, defended all of these ideas, as did James Madison. The American Revolution was, in many ways, a Lockean revolution, and it still has the power to inspire. Writing in the New York Times, my dear friend Mustafa, in a nod to Locke, offered an op-ed called A Letter Concerning Muslim Toleration. I assume you, you do not disavow this op-ed, right? All right, great. Here's what Mustafa <laughs> read, wrote a couple of years ago. If Islamic thought is to liberalize today, he says, it must take a Lockean leap. When I read that line a few years ago, I just wanted to crack open a bottle of Prosecco. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, exactly right. A Lockean leap. Now more than ever, we need that Lockean leap, both at home and abroad. Although he's considered a modern thinker, Locke helped to retrieve one of the gifts of historic Christianity. What's the gift? A narrative of grace and freedom that can defeat a culture of bigotry and oppression. Locke reminded us that every human heart, every human heart whispers its desire for the mansions of the blessed, for a glimpse of that bright kingdom that lies beyond the sea. We could use another John Locke, ladies and gentlemen, or someone like him in our latest hour of crisis. Thanks for listening. School choice opponents make several appeals to the public, but the argument at the core seems to be maintaining substantial public funding for a select group of people. 
At the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit, Steve Perry of Capital Prep detailed some of his experiences fighting for school choice for young people in New York and elsewhere. Let's start with a children's book, right? Because you guys look like big fans of children's books. Uh, oh, the places you will go, right? Congratulations. Today is your day. You're off to great places. You're off in a way, it says. It's something that I think a lot about. Because being born on my mother's 16th birthday, third generation in poverty in public housing, and then ending up at an Ivy League school, I often wonder about the journey. When I think of what it is that we do, it feels like a journey. This week started with me at one of our schools in Harlem, where we had had a fight among two middle school girls. Now, if you are unfortunate enough, I mean fortunate enough to have middle school girls in your life, you know that they are the meanest human beings on earth. Sincerely, like rattlesnake mean. And so the day was as it typically is, where you're just trying to get to the bottom of why she looked at her and she looked back at her and why looking is so much of a problem at this age. At the same time on this journey to here, I find myself working to engage African-American and Latino legislators to try and understand how it's possible for them to engage in school choice themselves but to act as more Democrats than they are black and Latino and school choice parents when it comes to their politics. It's a strange journey that I find myself on, but I have brains in my head and feet in my shoes. So I get to steer myself in whatever direction I choose. And then I go on and as part of the community that's trying to find ways to bring people together, I end up and really end up at an event with uh, Al Sharpton. And I'm wondering, this should be interesting. Because as I sit there, I look around and I see a room full of 1,300 people of color mainly, and I wonder aloud, because I don't typically wonder to myself, what could we do if we decided that we were going to lean on one issue as opposed to just be here to celebrate a man who's already celebrated himself often? <laughs> See, along this journey, what happens is I open schools, something that I thought that if I did, that I would just be celebrated, maybe like he is. But in fact, what I found is that People such as us, free thinkers, individuals who do not allow themselves to be pigeonholed by a single party or zip code are the threat to the very nature of so much of the coupling up in America. I am supposed to, based upon my zip code, not be here for real. In fact, I found that out because the woman that I sat next to in first class, good looking out, Cato. 
when she saw me, I commented on her jacket, which I said was very nice, which is a scary thing to do these days, gentlemen. I don't know how many ways you could say, I'm just, it's just a nice jacket. I just want just the jacket. In fact, I waited for her to take it off and put it in the overhead, and I just commented on it in the overhead. Y'all ain't gonna get me on a Me Too. I'm not going out that easy. So we didn't make conversation after that. I avoided eye contact because, you know, and I kept my hand up like I'm married. I just wanted to say, is your jacket nice? But I'm not supposed to be here. I was informed by her in part because when I got off the flight and um, you guys were kind enough to have a guy sit there with a big ass Cato written on a red hat when I landed, like, he's with us. She saw me again in the, in the Marriott and she says, well, I see why you're here. Why? Well, you're with them. I was like, well, who am I with? You're with monopolists. I said, what do you do, Miss Presumptuous? I'm a professor at Yale in econ. So I'm black and male. Does, do, like, do I win? Like, am I more liberal now? Like, do I get my credentials back? The point is that for so many people, it's more important for them to stay in their silo than it is to solve the problem. The problem that we have is 91% of the children that we accepted in Harlem this year into the sixth grade cannot do math on grade level, 91%. We can't reform a system that fails at 91%. It's unreformable. It's broken. In fact, I submit to you, it's actually not broken. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do. It was never intended to be able to carry the weight of poor or minority. It was never intended to carry the weight of a current uh, economy. It was never intended for that purpose. In fact, the system that we are operating in was designed, if you can call it designed, in 1635. I'm not using any technology from 1635. I don't want leeches. <laughs> but what has to happen is people such as us have to find ways to agree. And so as I'm going with feet in my shoes and a brain in my head, I stumble upon so many folks whose feet are definitely in shoes, but brains are not in their heads. Because what they want to do is maintain the status quo such that, in many cases, the teachers' unions get to keep their jobs. The only rub against school choice is that and that alone. You peel back every single argument, and at the end of it is, but they're going to take our jobs. And that's it. The whole notion of privatization is one that they're saying it's not the privatization of choice. Because the most important person in the decision of a child's school is not a blind government. In fact, when I talk to these folks who would call themselves liberals, do you trust the justice system with African-Americans and Latinos? No, 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 never that. 
It's the same damn system. The same people who created that system created the education system. They're the same guys. You think they took a light on, light on us in education? No. The plan was the same. So how do you then say that you are pro-choice when it comes to a woman having a child, but once she has the child, she has no choice where to send a child to school? The profound hypocrisy of these individuals makes it clear that either they're just lying overtly or they have no brain in their head. Because reason has to kick in at some point. De Blasio is saying that he's against testing. And his plan to make sure that there's equity in the testing schools is to remove the test. Okay. That'll definitely fix it. Except for the fact that the highest performing schools in the city are charter schools. And those schools have the highest percentage of children who, guess what, pass the test. So a reasonable person who had a brain in the head would say, then we should increase access to those seats in which they are preparing the children for the seats that we're saying that none of children are prepared for. But the overwhelming majority of charter schools are not union. So he can't. He can't because he is listening to that woman who had the nice jacket who tells him what to think. And he is listening to people who are telling him what to think. But you, oh, the places that you will go. Because you understand that it is more important to be a free thinker than to be a party member. You understand that it's more important to push people who are willing to push the system beyond its comfort zone. Because at its core, change is life. Growth is life. Movement is life in all of us, no matter how much hair we do or don't have, no matter what color it is under all the other colors, want to live. We all want to live. No different than those two girls who were having a fight. They didn't want to fight. They allowed someone to paint them into the proverbial corner, like teenage girls often do. Did you hear what she said about you? No, what'd she say? And back and forth they go, just like the woman in the lobby, just like the woman with a nice coat, just like any of the people who say to me, you spoke at Alec, damn right. Why wouldn't I? They paid. <laughs> the only groups who try to control what I say are my friends, the Democrats. They'll call me, it's a really interesting conversation, it's awesome. They call me and they'll say, we just want to talk to you about who's going to be in the room. That's how it always starts. We want you to consider every voice that's in the room. And then they start to tell me, well, you know, we're going to have some people who are in a union. And, you know, we don't, we don't really want to offend anyone. Awesome. You should call somebody else to speak. Because if I don't offend somebody, then I'm not saying what I really feel. In fact, if you've been married, you understand that it's impossible not to offend. You didn't know that, she was that you were supposed to know that she wanted you to stop off and get the thing that you didn't even know existed. You didn't know. And you're apologizing at full throat. I'm sorry I didn't know, which is an insane apology at its core. How do you apologize for not knowing? 
But what I know is this. The children that we educate just want out, man. They just want an opportunity. We have 1,200 children on the waiting list at one of our schools. And so what I'm doing is I formed an organization called My Child, My Choice. And what that organization is doing is going up to African-American Latino legislators and saying, man, I know where your kids go to school. So don't sit here and tell me how you're so pro-public school. I know your kid goes to school. And you ain't Catholic. <laughs> and we're pushing these folks. We're pushing them to have a real conversation because if it's not good enough for your child, then how are you going to give it to somebody else's? And what we're finding is when we sit down with our brothers and sisters is that when they're being honest, what they're saying is that they've been lied to by the teachers union for so many years about what charter schools are, what school choice is. I'm a voucher guy. I'm on the whole other side. I run charter schools. But when, not if, when the vouchers become real, they can have this charter school. I'll start from scratch. The hangover from the Iraq war still looms large. It cost the United States dearly in terms of blood and treasure to say nothing of the staggering death toll in Iraq itself. And yet that disastrous decision to go to war is hard to piece together. Retired Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, speaking at the Cato Institute, detailed some of the factors that took the United States to war in Iraq. When I teach my students national security decision-making and focus on fateful decisions, which we define as those decisions that send young men and young women to die for state purposes, and something we often forget, to kill others for state purposes, as, for example, in Iraq and Afghanistan, some 300,000 people, even by DOD's estimates. And to spend, as the Congressional Research Service has pointed out in its latest research into the cost, and I think this is very low, Brown University probably has a better figure, $1.7 of your tax dollars to do so. There are far more complicated and complex reasons that I illustrate to my students. I use David Rothkopf's framework for analysis. It comes from his book, Running the World. And very simply, it's five categories of influences that encompass what David and I think influences national security decision-making in any state, but particularly in a superpower. The first is people, personalities, character, sociology of the decision-making team, chemistry of that team, and so forth. And we can illustrate this really quickly by simply saying, take this president, Jimmy Carter, for example, and put him in the White House and ask if Iran-Contra would have occurred, or if Watergate would have occurred, more to the point. Do the same thing with other presidents, and I think you'll see the importance of who's there and who's advising who's there. So that's the first. The second is the international circumstances, what's happening in the world. We are the only country in the world that has an embassy or a consulate or both in every country in the world, with very few exceptions, like North Korea, where the Australians look, for, look out for our interests to a certain extent, um, and Iran, where the Swiss look out for our interests. 
So we are the only country in the world that has 800 bases in the world. The rest of the world combined, including Russia and China, only has 78. We are an empire. So it's very different when you look at international circumstances. Even Britain wouldn't give a damn about some of the things we think are absolutely critical. And we seem to think everything is absolutely critical. Ask those boys in Niger who were killed and didn't even know there was anybody around who was going to shoot bullets at them. The third thing is domestic political context. And that's a big one. That's a huge one. As was pointed out here in Clinton's administration, over protest from his advisory team, the Congress, and he went along with it, passed, he didn't veto, the Regime Change Act for Iraq. Those are domestic political circumstances. They influence national security decision-making, too. Sometimes, in a way, for example, the greatest foreign agent operating in the United States of America today is not Russia, it's Israel. Israel has more influence on American politics than any other single state in the world, violating everything Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, John Adams, and a host of other founders said about having close relations with another state in the world. That's a very important aspect. The next one is ideology and governing philosophy, and that certainly has influence in this particular case because I saw the neoconservatives, I'm looking at them today, operating on the same sheet of music, essentially bring their ideology to bear in a way that was poisonous in this administration. And then the last feature of the analytical framework is process, structure, organization. Where are the decisions made? Are they made on a boat in the Potomac with Bibi Ruboso by your side and the next morning you invade Cambodia? Were they made in the statutory National Security Council with all due deliberation? Were they made on a Thursday morning at a luncheon? Tuesday morning at a luncheon? Were they made in the Oval with only Jim and Brent and George there? How were they made? These things all make a difference. So to reduce national security decision-making to a single component, or even a couple of them, is good literature maybe, but it's not what I would teach my students. I teach my students that this is highly complex, extremely difficult to analyze afterwards. Even if you go to the George Washington University National Security Archives, the greatest place on earth to find primary sources and archival evidence the NSCDMs, the different ways that presidents codify their decisions. I agree completely with these two gentlemen. There was no codification of a decision to go to war with Iraq. There is no national security document that we historians will find later. There isn't one. It was an inexorable process of March. In the summer, in the summer of 2001, Richard Haas, the director of policy planning, shot the bejesus out of his policy planning staff, which he'd only recently assembled, especially his Mideast experts, when he came in and said, I just got off the phone with Kanye. We're going to go to war with Iraq. Holy mackerel. Summer of 2001. Fast forward to me in the Oval Office with President Obama and John Kerry sitting across the table from me. Actually, it was in the Roosevelt Room. We went to the Oval afterwards. And President Obama is supposed to spend 15 minutes with us, thanking us for the work on the nuclear agreement with Iran. Now, toast. And he starts off and then goes on for 30, 45 minutes. 
he starts off with these words, which now top my syllabus. There's a bias in this town toward war. The next 30, 45 minutes were spent telling us that after seven years in the Oval Office, he had no idea what to do about it. There is. So there's that factor, too. When war is as profitable as it is for the largest arms merchants in the world today, we'll have more of it. So all of these things influence national security decision-making. You like Cato Audio, of course you do. But when you get the Jones for substantial public policy discussions and you've already burned through your Cato Audio for the month, try out some of Cato's several podcasts, including the Cato Daily podcast hosted by yours truly. Do me this personal favor and subscribe to Power Problems, Free Thoughts, and of course, the Cato Daily podcast to get a daily dose of analysis and discussion about public policy issues of the day. They're available at no additional cost, over and above your generous support for the Cato Institute, of course, and these podcasts are available wherever you get your podcasts. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.